and welcome to ZSL's Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Boom, Research Fellow here at ZSL's Institute of Zoology, and today we're going extra wild, or more to the point, we're going wild again. What are you talking about, Moni? Well, today we are going to talk about rewilding. So hello and welcome to ZSL's Rewild Science Podcast. Now, rewilding has the potential, as far as I understand, to turn our traditional way of thinking about conservation on its head. In a way, rewilding is more about ensuring ecological resilience of ecosystems now and into the future, as opposed to the more traditional view of restoring ecosystems to what they were. Given that our climate is changing fast, ecosystem restoration to former states may no longer be feasible. So we should design and manage ecosystems fit for our future in a changing climate, But are there not potential ecological risks? What about the socio-economic risks to the human communities within that ecosystem? Or are they outweighed by the benefits? And what are the current barriers to implementing these novel ideas about rewilding? In short, there are so many questions. So here to help me make sense of this all is Natalie Petrelli, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Zoology. Natalie, I'm so glad you're here so you can look after me. Um, my head is already spinning just thinking about climate change and never mind how we best manage our ecosystems to be resilient to future change. What sparked your interest in rewilding? I think um, it's always interesting to think about concepts that create a bit of interest in people and uh, a bit of debate. And rewilding started to emerge more and more as uh, something contentious, but interesting, but not well defined, that could have potential or maybe not. So I got interested in, in just understanding what it is and why was there so much buff around it. Ah, so we need a good definition for this. How about we get a professor of ecology to tell us more about it? Do you have one? I believe you do. I actually have one here right now. Oh, and this is, yes, Professor Johan Dutois, who is currently working at Utah State University as a professor of ecology. I would say a professor of applied ecology. Johan, could you let us know a bit about what you think rewilding is? So rewilding is a relatively novel concept that is relevant to climate change and that it's different from restoring. And so we need a new way of dealing with conserving biodiversity in a changing world and rewilding has been around for a little while but it's recently been redefined if you like in very functional terms so do you remember a bit when it was all about corridors carnivores and cores (laughs) it was all about bringing big mammals back to landscapes and since then there's been a total rethink about it all and really the re of rewilding isn't necessarily just bringing old extinct things back like you know bringing elephants back to replace mammoths and so on but it's about reorganizing retooling reconfiguring wildness if you like so that an ecosystem can function under new conditions so what would you say rewilding isn't then so rewilding is not trying to get a ecosystem back to the way it was. And so rewilding is not restoration. Mm. So I know you have a super nice analogy about it's cars. About classic cars. Exactly. Yes, and garage. <laughs> yes. could, you, could you use that? Because it's one so of my an favorite analogy. analogy. An analogy I like to use is with motor cars. So if you were to restore an antique 1950s Chevy, you would restore it using the exact original parts and you would get the right tint of paint and you would get the right upholstery. And rich people do this and can afford to do this and they can get the right parts. 
and that's great. But in Cuba, for example, you can get those same cars still running, but they're not restored. They might have, for example, a Russian cement mixer engine under the bonnet, and they might have wiring from a Chinese washing machine, but they work. And so the Cuban car is a model of rewilding compared to the rich Chevrolet restorer who's restoring something perfectly the way it originally was. Now, it would be great to get everything back to the way it was, but if you don't have the parts anymore or the environment to run it in, then you've got to be creative and start thinking about new ways of making a system work to deliver a function or, or a service. And the service delivered by a motor car in, in Havana is provided by being creative and making an old car work and still have a taxi service running. Whereas if you were a purist and said you, to restore it, you need the original part, that old vehicle would stand derelict in the junkyard and would not provide the service. I absolutely love this analogy. I suppose much of our traditional conservation action is pretty much us being the purist conserver of things. So how should we adapt our thinking and what we're actually doing to factor in environmental change like climate change? Well, I think the way to adapt is to think, what do we want out of ecosystems? Do we want an ecosystem to be an artwork that's got to stay exactly the way it was created, maybe, in one's mind? Or are we deriving services from ecosystems that we really need to survive? Clean water, clean air, food, wood, grazing, pollination sources, etc., etc. And if we want function, then we have to think very hard about how to maintain that function under changing conditions. And that's where rewilding comes in. And it's a very exciting concept because it's infinitely open to new management options. So what do you see as a good example of a rewilding project that has happened already? Yeah, there are lots of different examples. And I would like to just suggest one in that rewilding can operate at multiple levels. You can get rewilding from the level of genes all the way up to the level of ecosystems. And a classic example that's been talked about a lot is in the Florida Everglades, where the Florida panther is a subspecies of puma, which has gone through a very problematic phase of small population size, leading to genetic inbreeding. And then an exercise called the genetic rescue of the Florida panther involved bringing in genes from Texas cougars and bringing those into the population in the Everglades. Now, those genes don't come from there. They're being brought in from the outside to serve a particular purpose, which is to reinvigorate the gene pool. And so that is rewilding, not restoring, because that's not an original part, if you like, of the ecosystem. And so now the Florida panther population in the Florida Everglades has got genetic diversity, they're functioning well, they're breeding well. In time, however, they're going to run out again of genetic diversity because the population is still small and there's less habitat. And with climate change, the Florida swamps are becoming more and more inundated by seawater. What do we do? Do we now keep on bringing in more and more pumas from West Texas, which are adapted for open dry rangeland, and put them in the Florida swamps? Or do we think, hang on, why don't we bring jaguars in from just across the Gulf of Mexico from the Yucatan Peninsula? And then we'll really have a good top predator to control the white-tailed deer in the Everglades. So that's an example of thinking along the lines of rewilding from a very functional point of view which will make the traditional conservationists scream with horror because it means bringing in components of a system that were not originally there. 
I quite like the overlap there because I suppose the first bit that you talked about with bringing in genetic stock from elsewhere, that's something that we already sort of do in many conservation projects, right. but I suppose we never really think of it as rewilding. We're just going, oh, that's our conservation, right? Yeah. Well, that's kind of like, you know, part of it if you look at the genetic level. Well, absolutely. Oh, it's, just a, really it's just a matter of which level of biological organization you work at. So I've got a very specific rewilding question that's been playing on my mind for a very long time. If I remember this correctly, and please correct me if I'm completely wrong, with the whole rewilding debate in Europe, there was at least at some point um, talk about the kind of ecosystem we're trying to aim for with our rewilding activities. Is it forest or is it grassland? I could have dreamt it. I sometimes have really bizarre <laughs> dreams. So are these the kind of questions that we should be asking ourselves? And do these kind of questions actually take changing climate or changing environmental conditions into account? Or is it more just a debate for the sake of debating? Well, that's an interesting question. And it highlights, I think, the difference between rewilding and restoring. The notion of trying to restore a sort of Neolithic, late Pleistocene landscape in Europe is really restoring in that there's some benchmark conditions that the managers for some reason want to go back to. Somehow or another in common usage that activity has been connected with rewilding but in fact the connection is made because it means just bringing some wildness back to a place. Rewilding means making the place wild again and wild means pretty unpredictable and wild systems adapt continuously to their environmental changes and disturbances and you can't predict exactly what's going to happen with rewilding because it's wild. So the, the, the question that I always wonder, I mean, I have my own answer to this, but what, what about you? Why do you think rewilding, which to me makes a lot of sense, is so controversial? I think it's because there's a classic affinity with conservation in a purest sense in that we need to get things back the way that nature with a capital N made them. Whereas rewilding is basically saying, let all these organisms adapt to one another and the environment, and let's let true wildness happen. And that's scary because it's unpredictable. You don't quite know what's going to happen. And that's a true definition of wildness. If something is wild, you can't control it, and you don't know what's going to happen. A bit like my children. Exactly. Yes. But I mean, if, if society wants a landscape to be wild, then you can't say it's got to be like this or like that, because then it won't be wild, will it? So what is your answer to that question, Natalie? Why is it so controversial? Yeah. I think because everybody thinks that they know what the wild is. <laughs> and I think we all differ in how we relate to nature, what we see as wild and what we value in nature. And I think that's one of the things that is interesting with the rewilding is that it's not just about concept that we think we all share. It's also about human experiences. And um, there is a certain uh, clash of value that we sometimes experience when we have those discussions. I suppose that's where the original concept that you talked about with the cores and carnivores stemmed from, because I suppose that was driven by people wanting to restore carnivores. Yes, yeah, species orientated, big landscape. It was one vision, but there are different visions. So one thing that is quite funny with rewilding is that if you say, if I bring back bees in the cities, is that rewilding? And some people will like, oh, no, 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 no. And some people are like, yes, definitely, rewilding project. So even into the classification of rewilding project, you see a huge variability, which mostly is underpinned by values. You do know me, I'm all for rewilding with invertebrates. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
exactly as we just talked about with Johan, climate change is happening and mm. some species will struggle and some will probably thrive under a changing climate. How first of all do we actually figure out what this changing status is of different species? It requires taking a lot of information on a lot of species and then potentially putting together a model that tells you roughly where things will move. And for the moment, we can do that pretty well with some species, the big one that everybody knows well and can see. But for a lot of species, just getting information about where that species is is actually really difficult. What are the kind of taxa that we don't know anything about? Well, most would be the invertebrates. Butterfly, of course not. I mean, being in the UK, people have a bit of an idea. But as soon as you go into any kind of animal that you can't see and that is small and that you can't recognize, then it gets, it gets a bit more tricky. So you did mention butterflies. That seems to give me a really good way into our next guest. It's as if I was fishing for this specifically. <laughs> so with us now is Chris Thomas, who's a professor of ecology the second one today, at the University of York. And Chris knows a thing or two about butterflies, so that was my very tenuous link introduction. But he also knows a thing or two about how climate change affects species and what these changes are. Yeah, so although you're quite right that we don't know about what's happening to a high proportion of the world's species, but the ones we do know, that something like three quarters of them are now already living in some places that they didn't live in as recently as 30 to 40 years ago. And a high proportion of those changes in distribution are driven by climate change. So we can't put a cap on nature and just stop it the way it was. So any rewilding project, anything, where we're thinking about trying to protect, preserve nature, the reality is that we're going to be experiencing a system of dynamic change. And it's how we adjust to and how we promote even that change within these sorts of projects, which is something of the challenge, because when the system is dynamic and is going to continue to diverge from what it's been in the recent past, then the real challenge is what are your targets actually going to be? So there's a question we have been asking all our speakers today, and it's how do you understand rewilding? What does it mean to you? Oh, well, I understand it perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) We've come to the right person. (laughs) It means exactly what the person wants it to mean. It's almost one of these all things to all people. Some people think of it as, as the Pleistocene version with lots of large mammals and trying to bring back the extinct ones through to people who are thinking a bit of it as just let's go, do nothing, put a fence round it and allow nature to do its thing. And of course none of these is correct. It's a human construct of how we think about our place in nature and the future of the natural world. I perhaps would drop the word re because it reflects a sort of historical perspective. But whatever we do, that system is going to change. And we've got to decide to what extent do we just want to let the system go in the way that it would like, and to what extent do we wish to nudge it in certain directions, and do we also want to use these systems to try and save globally endangered species. For the kind of wilding that you would like to see, Is there already an example of this happening somewhere in the world? Not for the version that I would aspire to. And that's because the version that I would aspire to, I don't think is really on the list of categories of wilding, rewilding that people have got at the moment. 
So as the climate changes, it's true that vast numbers of species are moving and the systems are all changing. But the bulk of those species which are globally endangered by climate change, and indeed many of the species that are globally endangered by other processes, actually can't move themselves to the places where the climate's going to be best. If you're a water beetle that's restricted to high elevation in snowmelt-fed streams at the top of the Sierra Nevada in southern Spain, you can't go down to the hot lowlands, travel across lowland Europe and reach western Wales. It isn't going to happen. <laughs> so as we think of the coming century, a lot of the species that are going to die out from climate change, and there are going to be a lot, are localised species, and they're localised because they're hemmed in in some way by environments they can't traverse. And we have to contemplate how are we going to try and move them to new locations. I like the idea of trying to meld the concept of assisted colonisation, which is the term that's often used to describe the transport of species to try and save them from climate change with rewilding projects because rewilding projects are not going to be the same as future they're often departures from the historic management of landscapes for me it would just be fantastic if these places could also be recipient location for some of these climate change refugees I know some people in the rewilding world put the focus of rewilding project as a way to enhance or maintain functioning ecosystem. How would you say should those species that should be moved, how do you prioritize them based on their level of threat or potential impact on sustaining functioning? I would say all of the above because it's perfectly acceptable to prioritise something because it's an endangered species or because we think it's going to have some particular function. If you imagine a rainforest where the environment's getting drier, are we actually going to encourage and even import drier adapted tree species so that we continue to have more of a forest in that location rather than risk it collapsed. I mean, that's a sort of random example, but you can think of other functional examples where you might consider such options. However, I increasingly think very long term, and I wouldn't want to bet which of the species that we've got around today are going to be important for humanity in a couple of centuries' time. So my ancestors in the Victorian era couldn't have predicted what the world will be like today and which species will be successful today. Sitting here today, I may not be a modest person, but I'm certainly modest enough to appreciate that there is no way that I can know what the world's going to be like in a couple of centuries' time. But I do know that every future ecosystem, wherever it is, is essentially going to be composed of the descendants of today's species. So I would try and maintain the building blocks of future ecosystems, which actually, in a sense, is the old-fashioned view of species and population level conservation, perhaps that would be a higher priority for me than the immediate ecosystem processes that will then take place. It's a bit of a precautionary principle based on maintaining as much diversity as possible, but that has to face the reality that it's very difficult to do everything. Absolutely. 
But the real challenge is people and politics, because if you take 17% of the land surface as the HE target, and you were to distribute that to try and maximise the amount of biodiversity in it, and then combine it with analyses of climate change tracks that would enable species to move around, then a relatively modest proportion of the land surface can actually support a high proportion of species-level diversity. IT target and 17%, for the benefit of our listeners, what does... Well, you guys can describe it better than me, perhaps, but... Um, we'll let the professor do that. <laughs> Essentially, the international community of nations, has, with one or two exceptions, has signed up to trying to designate 17% of the land surface as protected area of one another. The problem is that people don't agree to put their protected areas in the locations that would maximise global diversity for a number of reasons. One, because it's easier to protect a bit of tundra, perhaps, although it's going to melt soon, but uh, it, <laughs> it, it's, it seems easier to protect a bit of tundra than a bit of productive soils in a warmer part of the world. And then the other thing is that people are completely parochial in their thinking. You see nature reserves and priority species clustered close to the geographic boundaries of nations because this is where various species, just the edge of their distribution just peeks over into a new country. So it's a rare species in that country, even if it's not a globally endangered species. So you end up prioritising things that appear to assume a national significance, but they're not globally. Coming back to the rewilding issue, the real challenge is that every part of our planet has been altered by humans already and we're going to continue to alter it. And so having this hard distinction between bits for nature and bits for humans is human construct rather than a reality. And I think that the rewilding challenge is to take on board and think about what can we realistically do given that the world is changing and human influence is everywhere including the influence of climate change. Of course, you could then also start talking about rewilding in urban landscapes. This totally. like a totally, totally upcoming... If you're thinking about moving species in the context of climate change, I don't think we should rule out urban areas. And in urban areas, because it's already such an obviously human-perturbed system, then there's going to be fewer idealistic conservationists, let's say, getting upset because you've spoiled pristine nature. <laughs> you might upset some architecture aficionado. <laughs> Another bird food on a really nice building. Surely it's not really all about ecology. And so with us now is Sophie Wynne-Jones. Sophie is a researcher at Bangor University in Rural and Environmental Geography and Policy Studies. And she's especially focusing on stakeholder cooperation and knowledge controversies. Now, I love this term, but controversially, I really don't know what it is. Can you explain? Rewilding is a pretty good example of a knowledge controversy. It's something where people have different ideas, different objectives, aspirations and values. So there are lots of different knowledges that go into the melting pot that mean that this is a contested term. And if we were to ask you, what is rewilding to you then? 
What does it mean? To me, I think it has to be about giving nature more room, more freedom, more control. And I see that as a uniting theme across the majority of projects that I've, I've observed across the UK as well. So how should we measure success of a rewilding initiative? Is it all about ecology or how do we factor people in? Or do we need to factor people in? I think we do need to factor people in because we live in a small country with lots of people in it. And if we don't factor them in, I think they'll get quite cross. And generally speaking, they have been getting quite cross about rewilding. So it is probably a good idea to pay attention to them if they're not going to shout at you too much and stop you from accessing the land where you would like to do rewilding. So engaging with, working with people is part of what we need to do with rewilding. I think we can rewild little pockets of land which might be in private favourable ownership. But if we want to make this a big movement which really changes conservation, I think we do need to speak to a wider range of people. They are the ones that will have to live with it. So they are the neighbours, uh, the people that live nearby those lands that might be rewilded. Exactly. So perhaps you could say we can do rewilding on this little patch here, but there will always be, hopefully, an overflow of nature out of that bit of land. Nature's not very good at staying still whether it's foxes or water or anything. Yes, I suppose also as humans we're kind of part of the ecosystem, aren't we? Indeed, indeed. So I think putting us into different boxes is not always necessarily helpful. And as a geographer, that's something really important to me is trying to get over that sense of a division. Now, I might be playing to some stereotypes here, maybe just from personal experience, but, you know, biologists, ecologists like myself, we're not necessarily known for our outstanding communication skills with the general public. Of course, we're addressing this here, you know, one podcast at a time. But how do we best convey the rewilding message? My first point of advice would be stop projecting and start listening. Whenever we're trying to communicate anything, we have to try and understand where people are at because we can fire information at people all we like but it's just going to slide straight off if we don't find a point of connection. So the first step is listening to figure out where they're at and then start from there. I just listened intently, by the way, to this answer. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh God, must practice right now. But it also means that there are different audiences. So Absolutely. it's not just listen to one person and listen to a range of different views. Some people might not just be interested altogether in rewilding. And to be fair, why should they be interested in rewilding? Absolutely. One of the big messages we've said for a long time working with the Cambrian Wildwood Project in Wales is that we're not necessarily trying to change land use everywhere. It's an exciting idea. I think we need to be exploring rewilding, but maybe it doesn't have to happen everywhere. And I think assuring people about that. Or maybe also it's a way to start talking about how they can relate to nature and what do they get out of it and why it would be interesting. I mean, rewilding, because it captures so much of the interest of the public, what's interesting with the rewilding is how it has completely spread in the newspaper. People just love the term. Whether they understand the concept is a completely (laughs) different thing, but the term has a lot of, of traction. So it could also start a conversation. Absolutely. I think it's a very exciting term. It has a lot of emotional resonance and impact. For some people, it's rather scary. For some people, it's something that really ignites a kind of sense of love and passion in them for the environment. So I think the fact that it is such an effective term is really quite useful. And I think it can be a good starting point. I think we also need to be careful about the way it really shuts some doors and turns people off as well, though. Mm -hmm. So a knowledge controversy. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs)
So if we were going to go into a more practical way, what do we need to do to design like the super successful rewilding project? Well, I'm probably going to be annoying here and say that we shouldn't be looking for a fixed blueprint in the same way that we need to be thinking about ecological adaptability because we're looking at moving forwards. This is about future nature. It's not about going backwards, trying to restore things. So we need to respond to ecological system changes and things that we're not expecting. It's the same in terms of people. We need to be adaptive. There isn't a blueprint. If you go in with a blueprint, people will probably throw it back in your face. So rule number one, be incredibly flexible. Listen, be flexible and try to care. What are your direct experiences with rewilding projects and public perception? Have you worked on projects where there was a particular controversy? Yes, yes, I've spent a lot of time getting shouted at. Um, <laughs> but also having very productive conversations as well. I think my most of my direct experience comes from working with the Cambrian Wildwood project in Wales. And for my sins, I end up speaking to a lot of the, the neighbouring farmers and different farming stakeholders because my research background is in that side of things. So, And again, I think a lot of the time it is about listening and trying to overcome barriers. People like shouting at you on social media and then when you meet them face to face, you can normally find something in common. So it's trying to take the heat out of things a little bit sometimes and sometimes acknowledging that you will not agree about certain things and maybe you just need to work out how to be good neighbours. Conflict management. Controversial. We can try and be reasonable, you know. We might not agree that we need to deal with species in this way or we want more wild woodlands, but we can actually respect each other as people that have to live in close proximity. And I think that's why it's quite important when we think about rewilding as locally embedded community projects because it is about people living alongside. Whereas I think if a rewilding project feels like something that's kind of being imposed from a distance. A lot of the farmers I work with in Wales joke that link three introductions would be fantastic in Surrey. <laughs> and perhaps they might be right. Perhaps they might be right. Right, Natalie, we heard a lot about the concept of rewilding. How about some examples, some examples from the UK? It's true, we haven't really discussed any tangible projects, so that's why I think it's pretty lucky for us to have Rebecca with us. Um, Another coincidence. Yes, so Rebecca Wrigley is the chief executive of Rewilding Britain, and she knows a lot about uh, what's happening in the UK on the rewilding front. Our main focus as Rewilding Britain is to establish or help catalyse three to four large-scale rewilding projects. I mean, large-scale being 10,000 hectares and above. So hopefully one in Wales, one in Scotland and one in England to get a kind of diversity of different locations and, and ecosystems and range of habitats. So um, at the moment, for example, in Wales, we're working in partnership to establish a project called Summit to Sea, which aims to connect the highest point in mid Wales, down through the W Valley, out in, onto the estuary and out to sea. So it would be the first land and sea rewilding project in Britain and possibly in Europe, I think. And, and we're looking to establish similar projects, probably not land and sea, but in, in England and in Scotland. So whenever people talk about rewilding in the UK, there's always at some point the mention of a beaver or a lynx. Can you tell us a bit more about what actually, what kind of species do you tend to to? I mean, it depends with? on the locality and it depends what's locally appropriate and locally acceptable. So we wouldn't advocate reintroduction of species where there wasn't local support. 
uh, and where it, where it didn't make sense locally, both ecologically, but also possibly economically. So in Wales, the project is only just getting going. So we'd want to do feasibility studies about the species that are there, the species that were there, and what might be possible to reintroduce and enhance in terms of species. So it has to be a considered approach based on the locality and the context and the state of the habitat, for instance, and the support of local people. So one thing that we have been asking several people what they understand by rewilding, and we can safely say that they all had a different answer. <laughs> At least some different angle, yes. Definitely yeah. a different different angle. So how, how would you define it? What, what does it? what does rewilding mean to you? Well, for us at Rewilding Britain, it means the large-scale restoration of ecosystems when nature is allowed to take care of itself, um, where natural processes are restored and, where appropriate, where missing species are reintroduced. But for us, it's also a human process. So we feel that people and nature are part of the same thing. And so it's about finding a different future that works both ecologically and economically that allows both people and nature to thrive. So there is a very definitely a human element to rewilding and practically it's not possible to achieve without ensuring that local communities and local people also have a flourishing future. So for us it's about connecting with communities, about those communities playing an integral part in developing projects, about ensuring that they benefit uh, and that help create nature-based economies that provide a more resilient, diverse future for those areas that currently are facing a pretty difficult future. And in addition to the economic side, it's about the enchantment of nature and health and well-being and providing an opportunity for people to experience nature in a way that currently isn't possible in Britain. So what are some of these nature-based economies and the projects that are put in place, the ways that people can derive benefits from this rewilding project? Well, it's about taking a coordinated approach, so coming to a common agreement about how the land is managed and how its natural assets are managed. In a lot of areas like the uplands of Britain, it's going to be increasingly difficult for individual land owners to make a living off the land. But by coming together, they can take an integrated approach to farming and fishing and forestry across a large area and use collective bargaining power and also establish iconic destinations that could be a combination of, say, some forms of subsidy, so it's looking like those are going to be orientated more towards public goods rather than simply production, but also high nature value forms of production, both wild forage products but also some forms of livestock production, and then also tourism, ecotourism or uh, nature-based tourism. So it's an opportunity for areas for example, like the uplands, where many communities are now 80 to 90% subsidies to diversify over the long term. So we can provide a different future for the land and its people and allow both to flourish. So you must have seen a, a diversity of rewilding ideas and projects. You've been having different experience. Can you tell us what's your favorite rewilding experience? A story to share about what you've seen and what you've experienced and Ooh, how positive it question. was. The ones that have most impact, I think, aren't necessarily the ones in big rewilding projects. It's just those connecting to nature things. I remember as a child going down the bottom of the garden and I heard a rustle and this deer just jumped and it was staring at me for three or four seconds looking at me like ooh, and I was looking at it and it was just a moment of connection so it's about finding that for people it's about finding ecological connection it's about the enchantment it's about finding economic connection as well and and also social and cultural connection so for me it's about connectivity
And rewilding started to emerge more and more as uh, something contentious, but interesting, but not well defined, that could have potential or maybe not. So I got interested in, in just understanding what it is and why was there so much buff around it. My first point of advice would be stop projecting and start listening. Really the re of rewilding isn't necessarily just bringing old extinct things back, but it's about reorganizing, retooling, reconfiguring wildness, if you like, so that an ecosystem can function under new conditions. I was a bit late, I got a taxi from the station and conversation happened in a taxi and I was all in favor of releasing wolves in central London. <laughs> <laughs>